Hey everyone, this is Patrick Foote. You're listening to the People's World Podcast. On this episode, I have a conversation with Rasheen Aldridge and Tiffany Lofton, both leaders in the struggle taking place at the intersection of racial and economic justice. It's a great conversation. certainly left me with a lot to think about, and hopefully it does the same for you. Uh, The occasion that brought these two together was a panel on the subject of race and labor at the International Labor Communications Association's convention in North Carolina. The convention took place from Thursday to Saturday this past weekend, and thepeoplesworld.org has some great articles on the happenings there that you should definitely check out, peoplesworld.org. They're probably still hanging out on the front page. As for the podcast, we got loads of content. Uh, We got this interview. I have a brief interview with uh, Tafari Gebre, the executive vice president of the AFL-CIO. And we'll also cut that in with brief excerpts from his speech. We weren't able to get an interview with the Reverend Barber of the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina, but I'm chasing that lead and hopefully we'll have him on the show via Skype pretty soon. For me personally, the weekend was definitely a learning experience. Uh, To be clear, I'm not a trained journalist or sound engineer. The People's World offers a sort of DIY style of employment and I'm teaching it to myself as I go along and hopefully that comes off more charming than inept. And uh, I say that all to say that some of the audio we'll be releasing in the coming weeks will be a little bit grainy. It's an equipment issue. We know what's wrong. We've identified the issue. And uh, we're fixing it for future editions. That being said, these interviews and speeches will all definitely reward your careful listening. Um, Here's my interview with Rasheen and Tiffany, and I hope you enjoy it. That's right. Uh, that high five you just heard was between Tiffany Loughlin, Loughlin, Loughlin or Loughlin? Loughlin. Loughlin. Please speak into the mic if you could. Tiffany Dina Loughlin. Thank you. And what is your title? What do you like to go by? I am Tiffany Dina Loughlin. I work in the Civil, Human, and Women's Rights Department at the AFL-CIO. Cool. And we also have here Rasheen Aldridge, who... Go ahead and introduce yourself. Rasheen Aldridge. Uh, I wear many hats at times. We'll just say activist. Activist. I know you were with the Fight for 15. Fight for 15. I know you were with Ferguson Commission, Black Lives Matter in a broader sense, JWJ. Director of Young Activists United. Nice. Good setup. Um... (laughs) So, Tiffany, uh, can you speak a bit more about the historic moves the AFL-CIO has made to broaden uh, their, their involvement with uh, Black Lives Matter and uh, ra- for racial justice? They're, they're sort of um, trying to shift toward a definition and a role for itself of, ra- of and in racial justice. So, could you speak to that a little bit? Totally. So, like I mentioned in the workshop earlier today, um, this is not the first time labor movement or workers in general have had a discussion around racial justice or racism, right? We need to call that part out too. Mm-hmm. And um, what the AFL-CIO did in 2003 was passed a resolution that said we're going to take um, the racial justice issue very seriously and we're going to have these conversations and present recommendations that we want every local in the whole entire country that's a member of the AFL-CIO to, uh, to implement and then practice. Some of those things included 
do you have fair processes for people of color to have same opportunities as other folks in your union? Um, are there programs that are for um, folks who are from low-income communities and that are people of color so that they can get trained on how to become leaders, not just members, but how do they sort of raise through the ranks of being uh, uh, rank-and-file members to them being leaders? Um, you know, do you survey your people of color and everybody else often? Do you have a political program that focuses on targeting Latinos and blacks in your community? And so with those recommendations from the 2013 resolution, um, the affiliates agreed on it at convention, and then they sort of took it and ran with it. When I started my job earlier this year, I asked, okay, well, now that y'all have been running with it for a couple of years now, what has been the results of that? And because of leadership transition, not from the AFL specifically, but because of the labor movement's transition of leadership and everything else, we've kind of lost our way with focusing on that on, and mm. focusing on those recommendations. And so the question becomes, well, why aren't the civil rights departments for the locals funded? Why don't they have specific staff that are civil rights department directors so that they can focus on civil rights, right? Mm -hmm. And then also, um, uh, the leadership transition happens and what are the practices to make sure that you elect leadership that also care about those priorities? Because like folks said in the workshop, you can't really focus on the other things unless you focus on racial justice because you have to organize your workers. Right. Um, and so what that produced in, the, in, the, uh, in February of this year is the AFL-CIO Executive Council passed a statement to create the Labor Commission on Racial and Economic Justice. Mm -hmm. That is the program that I coordinate full time. Um, it is a, it, there's two bodies, there's a commission and there's an advisory council, and the commissioners are all principal leaders of international unions. Their charge, moving between now and February, or April of this year and February, is to um, focus on finding why those recommendations from 2013 didn't work, mm. why they didn't last, what, why did you forget them, why aren't you doing them still, and then two, what other changes do we need to make? Um, three is, what is the makeup now of our membership and of our leadership, and why are those discrepancies so big? Not only with demographics and race, but also income, also um, the longevity of how long they stay in the union, um, and questions like that. Mm -hmm. uh, it's really interesting because one of the biggest uh, tactics that this commission has is starting the conversation. And we're having uh, between six and eight hearings between uh, six and eight different cities across the country just having the discussion. And it's scary because, like we said, like, you know, people have been dying and right. there have been uh, different like arguments and different sides that people have taken around all of the Black Lives Matter pieces. Right. But now we're just asking these commissioners, you think this is serious. Let's have the conversation in your community with your members. Thank you. And yeah, we'll talk a bit more about uh, that. that <laughs> no, it's fine. We'll talk a bit more about that a little bit. Um, is it, and both of you, feel free to chime in on this one. Um, could you talk to me about uh, the similarities between the Black Lives Matter movement and the labor movement? Maybe not the similarities, but the intersections. Lay them out a little bit. Being part of the uh, the Show Me 15 campaign, um, a labor movement really is the one that started that, you know, fast food workers going on strike for a high raise and also for more money. Right. Um, I think the labor movement understood that, you know, majority of the people in these low-wage jobs are not only not just middle school students, but these are people of color um, not making enough money, uh, and we need to do something about it. We need to organize them. 
we need to get them active. We need to get their voices heard and get their stories out there so people can understand that majority of these low-wage jobs are people of color, and they're not making enough money to get by, and majority of people of color are making two times the amount of wages that they're making. Um, and I think when you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, people solely like to just look at it as, oh, it's just focus on police brutality uh, after what happened to Michael Brown. And that is a huge issue that we need to tackle, but it is so many different root causes of why police brutality happens in our community. Um, and looking at, you know, economic uh, the economic injustices that we have in our African-American community, I think, is a connection. I don't think that we have or the labor movement have really um, tried to really figure out a way that they can be a part of it. I think the Show Me 15 campaign was a, a strategy, but we don't need a strategy. We need people to really be in this movement for real, not just trying to uh, get people to be part of their unions mm -hmm. or to get uh, uh, more young people um knowing what labor is, but actually how do labor play a role in racial injustice and how do they stand in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement? Right, and you you know, you were saying that you wear so many hats, right? You, you rattle off four or five organizations who you are actively engaged with. Um, and you said in the other room, we just got out of a, uh, a plenary session here at the International Labor, Com uh, Labor Communicators Association, and uh, you were saying that some of the skills that you learned in one area of the struggle didn't quite cross over to the other areas. So what are some skills maybe that did cross over and some that weren't? Mm -hmm. So going out there organizing and using the skills that um, I learned in the Show Me 15 fight, I wouldn't say compl didn't completely help, mm -hmm. um, but it was a different type of organizing that was not necessarily needed on the ground in Ferguson. Mm -hmm. um, what happened in Ferguson was, you know, an uprise of people saying enough is enough. So it wasn't your typical, you know, let's talk, let's talk to other people, let's organize and let's go talk to these people of power. It was more like we need to disrupt to make people uncomfortable. And it may not be necessarily the traditional way of organizing or it may not be uh, the status quo way. But this was the way I think that uh, the young people on the ground felt that this is their way to organize. And I, and I think being able to take some of those skills as far as uh, – being able to have conversations uh, that uh, with individuals and telling them like the people in power is the one who are continuing to keep us down and I learned that a lot in the show me 15 like it's it's not um, the people in the community it's the CEOs of McDonald's it is uh, the political I mean the politicians who are basically giving these tax breaks over to uh, the McDonald's industries to the Jimmy Johns these are the targets um, and, and taking some of those skills to the Black Lives Matter movement I think helped but at the same time it 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 was so much different. Um, this this wasn't uh, your typical type of organizing. This was, you know, people are tired. This people is communities in crisis. In crisis and, and upset. And we don't want to just hit the streets. We want to hit the streets. We want to interrupt boardrooms. We want to do whatever it is so our voice can be heard. Right. And Tiffany, if you could just shift back to the, uh, the, the first question there, the similarities and the intersections. Yeah, I think um, th what that makes me think of is President Trump, after August 9th of last year, went to Ferguson and gave a speech. And um, a line in his speech that, is that everybody's sort of reconciling with and some people don't like, but that I've repeated several times is, um, our brother killed our sister's son because both the police officer, mm. Leslie McSpadden, were union members. And so then it becomes not only, well, this is happening and we're watching it on the media, it becomes our members in our organization and our national labor movement are dealing with this issue and we do not ignore it because they are our members. And that is, th that is the leadership of the movement. 
And so um, what it caused, I think, it caused a ripple effect because when we think about the labor movement and we think about the intersectionality of Black Lives Matter, it's appropriate to say it that way, but oftentimes we realize, and when I travel and I talk to our membership there, those folks who are black lives are, are also our workers. They are also the leadership of the unions. They are also mm-hmm. secretary treasurers here, and they're also rank and file members or leaders of the mm-hmm. civil rights you know, committee there. And so it's not just the issue that's the intersectionality, the people who are wearing multiple hats, we are those folks. So we can't, we, I don't think, I think it's inappropriate and we have to help folks get past and grow past the, p- the point of saying, you know, my personal hat is here, my professional hat is here, and my work hat is here. You, you, no, we, mm-hmm. <laughs> all of those things. And then, and then it's okay to separate yourself right. if your values don't change. You don't get mm. to become mm. Dr. Jekyll and then you don't become <laughs> the scientist on the other side and then say, I'm gonna be right. the Incredible Hulk here and not right. have the same values. Right. If you are in a position that an elected leader and you move from school teacher to principal, your values, they grow and they change, but they don't, they're not separate of each other at the same time, and that's right. very challenging. Speaking of that, uh, Tiffany, you just ran an exercise with a group of labor communicators that you said you run it all across the country, um, and it exposed some contradictions, I think, you'd agree, uh, within, yep. within the labor movement, um, specifically around the idea of holding other unions accountable. Um, can you talk about the purpose of that exercise? and the breadth of the conversation it spurs. And Rasheen, you can feel free to chime in because you were in there as well. Um, we, uh, we, the exercise itself, um, I just want to pay it tribute because it is not easy to create a scenario that um, replicates or mirrors incidents that have actually taken place on the cost of other lives, right? That has right. that sort of happened and started this movement around Black Lives Matter. And wh- what was that scenario? Can you just give us sure, a I'd real so short, um, the short of it? The short of it is there is a black man named Terrence Brown who has two jobs, and he has two jobs because he has a child. He is not able to afford taking care of his child with just one job, so he has to work two. One of those jobs is a graveyard shift at Target. Late one night or early one morning, around 2 or 3 a.m., he forgets his keys at his job workplace, and his friend comes to pick him up from his workplace to take him home because he doesn't have a car. Mm-hmm. His friend makes an illegal U-turn to return to the target to pick up his house keys. At the illegal U-turn, the police officers see the illegal U-turn and follow the car back to the target. There is a space between that because what happens is Terrence is in the target and comes outside with his keys in his pocket. Mm -hmm. The officer is there outside of the car telling Terrence to freeze where he is, to put his hands in the air. Terrence is confused as to what's going on because he's coming out the employee door, so there's obviously misunderstanding. He reaches into his pocket to grab his keys to show the officer what he went inside to get. The officer shoots him and accidentally murders him. And so the challenge is, for the people in the room, Terrence's mother is a member of your union, and you're in the executive council. She has three demands. The first is to indict the officer. The second is to support 5 for 15 because her idea and the narrative is if he had enough money at his first job, he maybe wouldn't have been at the wrong place at the wrong time anyway. And then three, to support a local candidate that the community wants to endorse for office. So usually in the responses that I get, people have no problem with 5 for 15, and they have no problem saying, well, depending on who the candidate is, sure, we'll do that too, no problem. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to asking the question around, would you indict the officer? Would you put him on suspension until due process is over? Does he get paid while he's on suspension? Those complicated, that that composition or, or, yeah, that composition of questions becomes very difficult for people to, 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 to navigate. But my question is not, what side do you pick? 
which is what people's first thing they want to go to, right? Like whenever we think of organizing campaigns, nobody wants to think about the strategy. Everybody wants to get to the tactics. Mm-hmm. Everybody mm-hmm. wants to say, well, here's what we're, we're going to go out and we're going to protest. No, no, mm-hmm. no, no. Wait, there's this whole, we have to have a conversation. Mm-hmm. And so instead I asked them, how was that process? Was it challenging? What came up at your table? What did people say? And usually when I do the workshop, I walk around so I can hear what folks are saying. And I've heard people, I didn't do it today, but usually I do that. And I've heard people argue with each other. And people have said, actually, this has nothing to do with 5 for 15. So, yeah, we support it, but it's not connected to this. I've also heard people say, well, yeah, Terrence's mom is a member, but how many other people of color are in the union? And I'm like, well, why does that matter? <laughs> what, what, what do you mean? Do we have to have a majority of people of color in the union for you to pay attention to the demand that the mom has? And so now we're really looking at race, mm-hmm. which people have said we didn't, we're not looking at. Mm-hmm. So um, I've gotten a, a lot of responses, but I think that the way that I, I intentionally try to close the meeting is, again, we want to have these conversations with people individually, right? Because trying to do a presentation or what a presentation or a panel is not going to change people's hearts. Personal stories, one-on-ones. I really like the arts. Sometimes movies and music do it too, um, and poems and stuff like that. But the call to action after that discussion and after that scenario and after people struggle with outing themselves and and having the first time or the first space to be able to do that is great. Now go back home mm-hmm. and do the exact same thing. Because if we get people to move outside of that comfort zone of saying, I'm nervous and scared of looking racist or I'm nervous and scared of, you know, somebody not being not liking what I said, then we'll never be able to actually get to a solution as a nation, not even as a labor movement. Mm -hmm. And so we move these people so that eventually we can move the labor movement to a position where it has a clear racial justice analysis that is able to say, when something like this happens again, whether it's black people, whether it's Latinos, South Asians, whether it's white folks, whoever it is, we can take a stance and we know how to respond and we know what practices and patterns we need to change. Awesome, thank you. And I think that uh, that was interesting because two things, there was a gentleman that said, you know, well, me personally, you know, my opinion on this would be totally different on, you know, my opinion is if I was on the e-board. And, and I was juggling back and forth with that, too. It's like if, if you personally value life and you're on this board, they should have those same values that you have. So for you not to necessarily do um, or carry out, you know, what you think is right because you're on this e-board, you need to rethink on what board you're on and if that board is really doing the the mission statement or the value that they're saying they're doing. And then another gentleman had made a comment and he was saying, you know, the first thing that I would do is totally different. You know, as a as a, a union, you know, we would say what happened was wrong, no matter if it was, you know, necessarily the police union or what it was, but we have to be honest. We have to be out there. We have to get out there and say, this was not right. This was not right because Terrence was, he was just grabbing his keys. It wasn't right. And just like anyone else, if he's on suspension, he shouldn't be getting paid. He should be going off work. It's not necessarily he should still be able to work. He brought up if it was a construction guy and he dropped lumber, you know, once you're on suspension, you know, you, there's no pay. You're not treated above the law or anything like that. People need to be held to the same standards. Can I add one more thing really fast? Please. I think what's really interesting is that when we hear like, you know, we, we organize and rally and, and, and lobby, you know, pol- politicians all the time. And I've been in legislative visits where I've sat in front of a politician. The pol- politician to me has said, you know, I really support unions. I was a part of a union. My daughter's a part of a union. My best friend, this is a personal story, had cancer. And he was a part of a union and was able to get health care and Obamacare to pay for his treatments. And now he is a cancer survivor and it's amazing. And so, and, and so I know that testimonies like that are really important. When we go and talk to a politician and a politician says, I believe in unions, I care about raising the wage, but I just can't. That to me says what that gentleman in the room just said. Well, yeah, you as a politician, you care about it, but you signed the legislation 
you put in action the consequences and you also have been voted in office by the people who are getting murdered, right? And, and the communities that are struggling, but you won't make the decision because you're, an, you're a politician or because of the politics of what's going on. Right. And that's why that separation to me was challenging. I said, no, 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 no. Well, then maybe you shouldn't be on the damn e-board. For the both of you, imagine you have the ear of the ear, your average white worker. They, you know, they're sympathetic to the to the struggle, they understand the inter the intersections and they want to move on it, but they're facing resistance from their union, their e-board, their family. What are some words that you would offer them to push through that? Any sort of resistance from their pe peers? I actually, um, one of the people in the room wanted to speak to me after the panel was over and her comment was, you know, Tiffany, I feel so strongly that I want to help and do something. I'm about to cry because she was crying. She said, I want to help um, so bad and I don't know what to do. And I, I, I can have the conversation and with some people they'll shut me down and with some people it's a great conversation. But I still feel like I'm not doing enough. And I feel like when I had the conversation, she said, um, things still don't change. And I looked and she started crying. And she said, so what else can I do? And at, this, at that point, me, right, like, who's like the staff person for the AFL-CIO who's been trying to figure this out and help all of us move. And I've been in the streets of Ferguson. I've been in the streets of Baltimore on the first night of the curfew and organized on my people from community organizations and town halls, like, on the ground. And there's so much work that needs to get done. And wanting to see the end goal and the, and the, the world in which we all want to live in is easy to, to see. Mm -hmm. But it's harder to grasp. And I said to her, you know, it's not as not the pun intended, but it's not as easy as black and white, right? Like back in the civil rights movement or the Black Panther Party or whatever was going on, like they had legislation that they knew. We want to desegregate the lunch counters in the schools and the jobs. We want to make sure, and the bathrooms, right? We want to make sure we can vote in, voter registration. Like those were concrete things. And it's challenging right now in 2015 because I don't feel like we have those things, right? And and so the, 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 the advice that I would give to someone is one, we cannot give up <laughs> and we cannot get stagnant or stagnant in believing that the conversation is not powerful because it is the pope francis just came by washington dc the other day and on wednesday and was talking about low-income people was talking about immigration was talking about marriage equality and the next day speaker banner resigned i that if that's not power and i don't <laughs> mean like spiritual power even though i identify as a christian Maybe like it was. i'm talking about right but it was right <laughs> like like that is the power of conversation because the pope came and said right you don't have to be the pope to say what the world should look like and you don't have to be the pope that rides around in a little you know what's it called theater or whatever that has that much influence over the people because not everybody's catholic and all those other things mm -hmm. but to even have this conversation here there was somebody in the room i have to believe which is what keeps me motivated to do the work i have to believe that someone in this room was learned something new today and also is going to go back home and have the conversation and people came up to me and was like, you know, I want a toolkit and I want to be able to use this scenario back home. Great. If if we can plant the seeds and be there farmers, that's the next step and that's the thing. But to the to the to the audience that's listening that feels like, you know, I'm, I'm not doing enough or this is also hard to uh, tangibly win because it is it is. We cannot get tired of having the conversation, um, and we do have to pick a side. That is something that I think is super important. People stand on the fence all the time. Labor movement and you as an individual, you need to pick a side. What side are you on? Thank you. I definitely have to second uh, what Tiffany said. Going to a parkway school, I have a lot of uh, Caucasian friends. And in West County, this isn't 
what happened in North County is a North County issue. North County, Missouri. House, North County, Missouri, yeah. Most people look, like to think, you know, what happened in Ferguson is just Ferguson. It has nothing to do with the Ladue area. Ladue's a, a very high, rich, uh, majority Caucasian in uh, Missouri or in Parkway as well. Uh, but at the end of the day, like Tiffany said, we, we can't fall asleep. We cannot go to sleep. Um, if we fall back to sleep, these issues will continue to happen. We'll continue to have these conversations. We'll continue to ask, where do we go from here? How do we get there? Wh what are we doing? Um, we have to continue to have that conversation. And I know, especially for the African-American community, you know that's hard because you know, we continue to have this conversation. We, we know what we want change. We know we want to be treated equally, period, all across the board, in education, in schooling, in, in, um, in our jobs, in our healthcare. We want it to be treated equally, period, across the board. But there's some people who do not want that. And I think, like Tiffany said, we got to keep planting them seeds. We got to keep having those conversations. We got to keep not only having those conversations, we got to put some action. You got to make people feel uncomfortable where they want to do something. Sometimes you're going to have to go out in the streets and do civil disobedience. Sometimes you have to go out and have a conversation with someone and make them understand this is my life that is at stake. This is my brother and sister life that is at stake. Even if you're not African American, these are my brothers and sister lives that are at stake. Mm -hmm. Do we really want to continue to see them? gunned down at the hands of police? Do we really want them to continue to have not the best education? Do we really want them to continue to live in low wage and live in poverty? And that's going to only have an effect on crime. We have to have the conversation. We have to pick a side. We have to agitate. But we cannot give up. It's going to be many people that say, oh, you know, you're crazy. Or you may not have that base like in Ferguson where people want that change. You may be out in the do and most people feel like, oh, everything's fine and pretty rainbows and everything else. But it's not. This is our region. What happened in Ferguson affects us as a whole, and we have to continue to push forward. And I know that's so like, oh, just push forward, you know, and then where do we go from there? But don't give up. Just don't give up. Keep you having cannot the conversation. give up. Keep having the conversation. Keep, keep making people feel uncomfortable. Right, because growing is uncomfortable. And, you know, Reverend Barber said yesterday that we're, you know, we're working toward this idea of a third reconstruction. And I, I, I agree with that his approach. Um, and I think with the power that you two have displayed uh, in your communities and you know, in, your, in your positions within these organizations, um, I, I, I'm confident if we get that third reconstruction, we won't need a fourth. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much for hanging out with me, talking with You're me. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you, Patrick. Oh, you're welcome. Um, and uh, thank you all listening at home.